Welcome to Music for Life, enhancing the Armstrong concert experience. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. In today's special episode, we will discuss a new piece of literature produced by the Philadelphia Church of God, a booklet about music's importance. Titled, How God Values Music, this booklet explores music's importance as revealed in Scripture. It investigates the Bible's various references to music, its history before man's creation, its journey through Old Testament Israel and the New Testament Church, as well as its future as revealed in Bible prophecy. This new booklet shows how music is a component of godly culture, how it is an essential part of our personal enrichment, and even how it connects us with the eternal. So stick around as we dive into a book that contains essential knowledge today on Music for Life. Music for Life has been centered around discussing and exploring the performances coming to Armstrong Auditorium more as program notes to these events, highlighting the artists and giving music appreciation tips as a service to the potential concert goer. Occasionally, though, we will break from this format to produce a special episode, and I wanted to do that today because of an exciting new piece of literature that we can offer you freely. Armstrong Auditorium and its concert series are sponsored by the Philadelphia Church of God, which has just produced a new booklet on the importance of music, and I want to explore that today and share some meaningful musical examples to accompany our discussion of this new book. First, I wanted to mention something that I read recently that will lead into today's discussion. It's an article by a leading business executive and a music connoisseur by the name of John Henshin. It was published at intellectualtakeout.org on August 16th, 2018, and it's called The Tragic Decline of Music Literacy and Quality. Some of its points will sound a little bit like someone in the older generation bemoaning how things are being done in the younger generation. And several musicians' blog posts have responded to this article, essentially rolling their eyes at the whole thing. But some of the data he cites is worth mentioning. He talks about the declining quality in pop music and cites a study from Barcelona that examined 500,000 pieces of music from 1955 to 2010 to prove his point. Now, this reminds me of a little story I should tell. Our season opener at Armstrong Auditorium this year was a string trio called Time for Three, which is known for its ability to mash up classical pieces along with more contemporary rock, pop, jazz, or country music. Now, after the concert, my wife remarked to me about one of these mashups from a classic rock song that they did. She said that the popular music of our day doesn't contain as many soaring melodies as it once did. Now, sure, Time for Three mashes up more modern selections, too, but their rendition of Stairway to Heaven didn't seem that far of a stretch for two violins and a bass because of the components in the melody itself. Now, of course, the lifestyles and values of those rock and roll musicians, not to mention a lot of their lyrics, were not godly in any way. But besides that, just looking at the music, the classic rock era that she was talking about is full of some of what I might call quality melodies. 
And as I thought more about her comment and my agreement with it, I wondered if we just sounded like a couple of old fuddy-duddies whining about how the music of the kids these days isn't as good as it used to be. <laughs> but then I read Henshin's article and the study he cited, and I thought, well, there's something to that perception. There's something to that observation. The study was led by Joan Serra, a postdoctoral scholar at the Artificial Intelligence Research Institute of the Spanish National Research Council in Barcelona. And her team, again, took these 500,000 songs from 1955 to 2010 and ran them through a complex set of algorithms examining three aspects of the songs. Number one, timbre, uh, the sound color, the texture, the tone quality. Number two, pitch, harmonic content of the piece, including the chords and the melody and the tonal arrangements. And three, loudness, the volume variance. Now, Henshin writes, the results of the study revealed that timbral variety went down over time, that first category, meaning songs are becoming more homogenous. Translation, he writes, most pop music now sounds the same. Timbral quality peaked in the 60s and has since dropped steadily with less diversity of instruments and recording techniques. Today's pop music, he writes, is largely the same with a combination of keyboard, drum machine, and computer software, greatly diminishing the creativity and originality. Pitch, that second area, has also decreased, he writes, with the number of chords and different melodies declining as musicians today are less adventurous in moving from one chord or note to another, opting for well-trod paths by their predecessors. He says loudness was found to have increased by about one decibel every eight years. So young people, it's not just the old people saying it, the music is getting louder. <laughs> music loudness, he writes, has been manipulated by the use of compression. Compression boosts the volume of the quietest parts of the song so they match the loudest parts, reducing dynamic range. With everything now loud, he says it gives music a muddled sound as everything has less punch and vibrancy due to compression. Now, some try to argue that classical music is somewhat homogenous and there's uh, a lot of it that sounds the same, arguably, by their standards. But there is so much variety in it by these three components, timbre, pitch, and volume. And I think this program has helped people to understand the various complexities of fine art music, which might on the surface to some sound the same. Henshin also talks about the decline in lyric variety, where Joan Serra also studied works from the last 10 years using a measurement known as the Flesch-Kincaid Readability Index. He writes, results showed lyric intelligence has dropped by a full grade, with lyrics getting shorter, tending to repeat the same words more often. Henshin points out that an astonishing amount of today's popular music is written by two people, Lukas Gottwald, or Dr. Luke, of the United States, and Max Martin from Sweden, who are both responsible for dozens of songs in the top 100 charts. He says you can credit Max and Dr. Luke for most of the hits of these stars, and he lists dozens of names, among which are Katy Perry, Britney Spears, Taylor Swift, Kesha, Miley Cyrus, Avril Lavigne, Maroon 5, Celine Dion, Usher, Justin Bieber, and on and on and on. He writes, with only two people writing, or you could say at least producing, much of what we hear... Is it any wonder music sounds the same, using the same hooks, riffs, and electric drum effects? Now, whether you believe any of Henshin's conclusions, ultimately what he's trying to do is raise awareness of music illiteracy, suggesting that it has contributed to the changing musical tastes of our culture 
and the shocking dive in piano sales, he points out. Henshin comments about Billy Joel, whose music, if you know, is quite complex harmonically and all that. He says this, In an interview, Billy Joel was asked what has made him a standout. He responded his ability to read and compose music made him unique in the music industry, which, as he explained, was troubling for the industry when being musically literate makes you stand out. Unquote. Henshin is also trying to expose the fact that music's exclusion from schools is less about funding and more about the fact that administrators, frankly, just don't value it or see its importance because they're focused more on standardized test performance which does impact how much of the funding they do get. Now, I think the new booklet we have on the importance of music will help the reader see its value. Now, it comes from a biblical perspective, using the Holy Bible as the foundation of this knowledge. In fact, again, the booklet is called How God Values Music. Our regular listeners will be familiar with this approach, as in our first two seasons, we had a Sounds of Scripture segment where we explored the Bible's various references to music to aid in our various historical discussions. The book is 87 pages and is divided into seven sections, an introduction and six chapters. The introduction is titled Expanding the Throne Room Culture. Now, to introduce the subject, it shows how the Bible describes God's sophisticated surroundings. It quotes portions of Revelation 4 and 5, which show God's throne room being filled with exquisite splendor, including angelic harpists and an angelic choir of 100 million voices. This atmosphere we have coined as the throne room culture. The Bible indicates that God intended to expand this throne room culture. The pinnacle of his angelic creation was Lucifer, whom Ezekiel 28 says was endowed with the finest jewels of the spirit dimension, as well as superior musical skills. After Lucifer's fall, scripture shows that God intended to expand his throne room culture through mankind. In fact, he put the first man and woman in an Eden, which was a type of the throne room itself, including the beautiful musical environment God intended there, which the booklet proves, and that's really a fascinating study. In this introduction to the booklet, the fact is established that the world, under the fallen Lucifer's influence, has not, on the whole, partaken of these finer things. Throughout history, dominated by Satan, whom the Bible calls the god of this world, culture has been really just a privilege for a small minority, and included in that minority would be the nation God worked with first. Israel was not God's favorite, but simply, as Scripture tells us, his firstborn. More nations were to be brought out from under Satan's influence in proper time order, This booklet shows how Israel's relationship with God, albeit limited and fraught with its imperfections, gave it a certain sophistication in its literary, artistic, and musical output. This is not fashionable to talk about today, but it is how the Bible describes it nonetheless. This booklet also traces the ancient nations of Israel into the modern world, as can be proved more thoroughly in other literature that we offer, and how this explains the dominance and appeal of so-called Western civilization's music. The booklet shows how this cultural excellence started with the nation's progenitor, Abraham, and how it continued to the height of the Israelite kingdom under David and Solomon. It shows how after Israel split into two nations, that the nation that maintained David's throne, that is Judah, continued to be known for its musical exploits. 
arguably the greatest king over Judah, was King Hezekiah. He decided to pay tribute to the Assyrian king Sennacherib to dissuade an invasion of Jerusalem. Secular history shows that he offered some of his court musicians as part of the tribute. Now, the Bible just says this tribute was, quote, treasures of the king's house. And those musicians are certainly treasures as the Bible sees it. And in his book, Music in Ancient Israel, Alfred Sendry points out that the artistry of these singers must have been exquisite, quote, if Sennacherib valued them higher than the pillage and plundering of the enemy's conquered capital city, unquote. Scripture shows that Israel was renowned for its musical achievements. When Judah fell to Babylon in the 6th century BC, Psalm 137 shows that the captors wanted the Jews to sing Zion songs, what the people of God's nation themselves called the eternal song. Upon their return from captivity, the repatriates of Jerusalem sought to reestablish the same cultural distinction that the nation had before Babylon's conquest. The booklet goes on more in detail about this timeline, but the introduction is setting up the supremacy of Israel's culture throughout history as an exception to a world generally cut off from God, as the Bible shows. It indicates how this cultural eminence would continue even into New Testament times and the spiritual organism God would create in his church. The introduction of this booklet then confirms that of all the components of a throne room culture, this booklet would of course focus on the art form of music. It establishes how essential music is not just to humanity's enrichment, but to anyone professing to live by the Bible. The Bible commands the use of music in relation to praising and worshiping God, as the booklet points out. This means, as the first chapter of the booklet will point out, that God would therefore introduce and reveal this art form to the first created human beings on earth. And that's covered in chapter 1, which is titled, Where Did Music Come From? Before I discuss that, I want to pause for a musical example, as we commonly listen to music on this program. I've selected some pieces to accompany our discussion today, produced by the Church of God. We just covered a huge swath of history, and a lot of that history has music written about it. The Philadelphia Church of God has produced musicals that discuss the time of David and Hezekiah and such, even drawing attention to the artistic achievements of those administrations. And I've played a fair bit of examples from those on this program, so I want to favor some different examples today. Earlier, I referenced the time when Judah was taken captive into Babylon, and the captors required them to sing one of Zion's songs, as their musical culture was known beyond their borders, apparently. We know this from one of the Psalms, Psalm 137, and this psalm has been set to music numerous times. I want to play a hymn setting of this psalm, as composed by Dwight Armstrong, the brother of our college's namesake, Herbert Armstrong. Mr. Dwight Armstrong is the composer after whom our conservatory building is named on this campus, and he was responsible for composing the majority of the hymnal used by the Church of God since the mid to late 20th century. A few years back, we had a small vocal ensemble record our entire hymnal on the stage of Armstrong Auditorium, singing all four parts of each hymn, along with our nine-foot Hamburg Steinway piano. Psalm 137 is found on page 103 of that hymnal, and so let's hear that at this point in our discussion. Thank you. 
That was By the Waters of Babylon, page 103 of the Bible hymnal as used by the Worldwide Church of God under Herbert W. Armstrong and used today by the Philadelphia Church of God. The music for that hymn was written by Dwight Armstrong, and it set the words from Psalm 137, which described the unique music culture of God's people and how attractive it is to neighboring cultures. We heard a small choral ensemble of ours in that recording on the Armstrong Auditorium stage with Mark Jenkins playing our Steinway Grand Piano. Today on Music for Life, I'm giving an overview of my new booklet recently published by the Philadelphia Church of God titled How God Values Music. I hope this overview excites you to read this new piece of literature, which can be found at thetrumpet.com right now if you want to download it and get to studying it right away. Also, all the music produced by the Philadelphia Church of God, including the hymn we just heard, and all the hymns, musicals, oratorios, etc., can be found at www.pcog.org, pcog.org. And when you go there, you can click on the Resources tab and then the Music tab to find all these things. This page also includes much of the sheet music and the lyrics for the music we've produced over the years. All right, so back to discussing the booklet. Before that example, we had discussed the book's introduction. For the remainder of the program, I'll talk about the booklet's remaining six chapters. Chapter one is titled, Where Did Music Come From? I discussed a lot of this material in the very first episode of Music for Life titled Prelude, which can be accessed on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at kpcg.fm, of course. This chapter goes more in-depth into the concept of sound in the spirit realm, the musical genius of the archangel Lucifer, who himself was, in a sense, a living musical instrument. The chapter also discusses the construct of the material universe being not just analogous to musical construction and ratios, but itself creating a certain harmony perceptible by its creator. We've discussed this harmony of the spheres concept at great length on this program, particularly in episode 5, titled The Harmony of the Heavens. Chapter 1 also talks about biblical evidence of there being singing and instruments in the Garden of Eden, as Isaiah 51 verse 3 shows. It also shows what psalm may have been composed for and given to our first parents in Eden. That's definitely an intriguing study. Chapter 2 of the booklet builds on that material. Its title is, How Advanced Was Biblical Music? We've also gone through some of this material on Music for Life, but in short, this chapter gives biblical evidence of the seven-tone scale in ancient Israel, which opposes the evolutionary theory of music's origin. It takes time to discuss the soundness of this scale system based on how the human ears and brains work. This chapter also shows how music in Israel, despite what many musicologists believe about ancient music, was not simply one note at a time, uh, monophony as they call it, but full of rich harmonies and dense textures based on how the biblical record describes the music. I will give a brief quote from this portion of the booklet. Looking at ancient Israel, we see groups of people, men and women, different vocal ranges, singing together. The Bible discusses assorted musical instruments playing together at the same time. That these musicians would play or sing together and never consider doing something different yet complementary to the melodic line is absurd. That a culture so exceptional in stringed instruments would never think to pluck more than one string at a time, a different complementary string, is ludicrous. <laughs> so that's a quote from the booklet. Then I quote 2 Chronicles 5 verses 12 through 14, which describe the scene at the 
dedication of the first temple under King Solomon. It discusses singers being accompanied by 120 priests sounding with trumpets. The chronicler describes them as one, quote-unquote, and how miraculous things happened in the temple during that performance. Here's what I comment about those verses in the booklet. Are we to believe that all those instrumentalists were playing the same notes at the same time, that everything was in unison? Some may argue that as one, to make one sound, implies monophony, but a study shows that this is not a comment on the texture of the composition but high praise of the musical performance. The orchestra and choir were truly together. Their performance was rhythmically precise and in tune. We would say the same about a fine symphony orchestra today. They were as one, despite all the different notes and parts they played perfectly together and in tune. And that's another quote from the booklet. Chapter 2 ends by showing linguistic evidence that the Hebrews used the pleasing harmony or interval known as the third. This is another good time to pause and listen to another musical example produced by the Philadelphia Church of God. We've already heard an example of a composition by Dwight Armstrong, brother of Herbert W. Armstrong. This is an example composed by Mark Jenkins, assistant music director here at Armstrong College. He wrote this for the dedication ceremony of Armstrong Auditorium. I thought it would be fitting to play here because we just talked about the dedication of the first temple under Solomon and the unity and togetherness of that performance. You'll hear in this piece Mark Jenkins's favorite of the brass instruments to evoke a similar kind of atmosphere as that first dedication would have had. This is called Dedication Anthem and Fanfare, and though it was performed live on September 3rd, 2010 by members of our city's Philharmonic, we brought some of them into the studio later to record this work. Here is Mark Jenkins' Dedication Anthem and Fanfare.
You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. In today's episode, we are discussing a new piece of literature produced by the Philadelphia Church of God, a booklet about music's importance, titled How God Values Music. So far, we've discussed the introduction and first two chapters of this book. We are also interspersing a few musical examples produced by the Philadelphia Church of God. We just heard music composed by our assistant music director here at Herbert W. Armstrong College, Mark Jenkins, and recorded in the studio by orchestral members from our city's Philharmonic. That was Dedication Anthem and Fanfare, written for the opening weekend ceremonies of Armstrong Auditorium back in September 2010. The third chapter of our new booklet on the importance of music is titled Music Prior to the Temple. This chapter begins our sweeping overview of the Bible's references to music, which shows how Scripture stresses music's value. The chapter opens with this paragraph, which is important to stress here, I believe. Quote, A study into the Bible's musical references reveals great richness and diversity. Scripture describes music of varying styles and intents. It speaks, for example, of the music of the masses, for example, the joyful noise of a congregation, as well as that of the skillful, well-rehearsed virtuosi. And then it gives several verses to reinforce that. The Bible does not only approve of sacred music, though many of its references show how music plays a significant role in the worship of God. It reveals how important God considers music and why. It describes many physical and spiritual benefits that we can receive from music." Before we get into this overview, the booklet next establishes the concept that music has also been used in spiritually harmful ways. Music has been used throughout history to create some sort of hypnotic spell for the worshiper. It was used at the worshiping of the golden calf at the base of Mount Sinai, for example, to aid the Israelites in their heathen revelry. In fact, the music was actually unrecognizable as music to Moses and Joshua as they came down from the mountain. They thought there was war in the camp. You can see that in Exodus 32, verses 17 to 18. The chapter talks about the music of Israel before the Exodus, going back to the time of Abraham and Jacob. Then it spends considerable time discussing Moses, who led the performance of the first religious national song in the Bible, as Alfred Sendry calls it, the Song of the Red Sea, as recorded in the first 21 verses of Exodus 15. We then explore the sparse references to music throughout the time period of the judges, and then spend a little more time discussing Israel's final judge, Samuel the prophet. As we've discussed on this program before, Samuel's schools were known for their music programs. These references show us how instrumental music was to the work of prophesying. Music was a featured component in Saul's beginning as Israel's first anointed king. But as the Bible shows, Saul didn't value music enough to employ any musicians in his court. For when he started having some severe spiritual and mental problems, his servants had to go outside of the palace and even outside the city of the king, to find a harp player. This is where they found a teenage harp virtuoso from the rural town of Bethlehem. Thus begins our overview of the most prominent biblical musician, David. Scripture indicates that music was a daily activity for David. Not only did he play frequently for King Saul as a young man, even when on the run from the crazed Saul later, he still continued to produce compositions, the lyrics from which are recorded today in the book of Psalms. Once established as king in Jerusalem, David brought back the Ark of the Covenant to the new royal city and with the help of the Levites created a musical performance probably unmatched in Israel till that time. 
Shortly after that, David institutionalized praise into the service of the tabernacle. In these accounts, we become acquainted with the Levites, who held the top music posts under the king. A discussion of this can be found under the subhead, David's Music Staff. And yes, for you musical pun lovers out there, the pun about David's music staff was intended. After discussing David, the booklet moves into chapter 4, titled Music of the First and Second Temple Periods. Since David's son Solomon was the first to construct a more permanent temple for godly worship, as opposed to the elegant tent that had existed to that point. This construction brought Israel's music culture to new heights, We already discussed the splendor of the dedication ceremony for this building. And even when the kingdom split in two, the tribe of Judah, along with Benjamin and Levi, stayed with the temple and the throne, and their culture still maintained a high degree of quality as pertained to the musical output. The northern kingdom of Israel, however, wanted nothing to do with that culture, and its music is never mentioned in the biblical record. Notice this quote from the subhead, Music of the Righteous Kings. Jeroboam prevented people from visiting the center of musical development in the region and no doubt allowed or caused pagan musical practices to enter the land, just as the golden calves endangered raucous music and orgiastic dancing in Exodus 32. And Jeroboam rejected the most qualified and trained musicians from serving in the religious order. Israel's music entered into oblivion. Consider this, and this is still a quote from the booklet, the Bible is silent about the music in the northern kingdom of Israel, which was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law, 2 Chronicles 15.3. In the Bible, music correlates with the spiritual state of the nation. Even in Judah, where the Levites' temple and lineage of David remained, music is mentioned only during the reigns of righteous kings. So the booklet continues to discuss the music references in the reigns of kings who were predominantly righteous, Jehoshaphat's singing army, Joash's revolutionary coronation, which took the kingdom back from a wicked queen mother, Hezekiah's rich musical culture, and Josiah's promotion of skillful musicians, which prompted them to lament in a profound way upon his premature death. Leading Josiah's singing men and women in these lamentations was the prophet Jeremiah, This booklet talks about his part in preserving the music of the throne, even when the Babylonians had supposedly killed all the male heirs. We show where Jeremiah went with the female heirs of David's throne, and how that music of that modern nation can be traced back to King David. Regular listeners will know which country I'm talking about, but I'll leave a little suspense for those who don't know, so they'll get the booklet and check that out. Next, we cover the renaissance that ensued when the second temple was built by Zerubbabel, beautified by Ezra, and fortified by Nehemiah. I plan to talk a fair bit more specifically about that in an upcoming special episode of Music for Life when we talk about the efforts of the men at this time to preserve quality music. But moving along in our overview of this booklet, and in the booklet's sweeping overview of the Bible's many music references, we come next to chapter 5, Music in the New Testament. What I think you'll find interesting about this chapter is the music references found in the Gospels. Only in one instance is sacred music referenced, the hymn sung on Jesus' last Passover. All other music references are referring to secular popular music, music for social gatherings and such. This again confirms that the Bible is not only in favor of sacred music. It also shows that Jesus referenced the Greek instrument known as the aulos, A-U-L-O-S, or the flute, 
which the most conservative Jews, fearing Greek influence, had frowned upon and banned. This shows how Jesus Christ endorsed all kinds of music and that it was the use of the instrument, not the instrument itself, that was either proper or improper. What is also interesting about this chapter in the booklet is that to this point, the booklet has been following music's progress largely through the lens of one nation, Israel. And in the New Testament, the church becomes spiritual Israel, as scripture indicates. So our journey begins to map the course of music through this spiritual organism. In addition to discussing the music references in the New Testament as pertained to the first century church, there is also some fascinating history as we trace the thread of God's church through time. Coming to modern times when the Bible prophesies of an overall renaissance in the church, music blossoms in the 20th century true church. The booklet points out, quote, as in physical Israel, the spiritual health of God's spiritual nation is reflected in the people's music, unquote. This chapter on New Testament music also points to the prophecies contained in both Old and New Testaments about the future of music. It discusses the time when all will be keeping God's laws, as Isaiah 2 describes, and when the spiritual nation is the ruling kingdom of God, as Daniel 2.44 shows. Isaiah says the whole world will be turned into an Eden, where the voice of melody will be heard. And the word for melody means to strike the strings, showing that there will be voices and all kinds of instruments in this future Eden. Here's another quote from the booklet, which will set up our next musical example fittingly. Quote, This time is preceded by great tribulation, Matthew 24, 21. When Christ returns to stop humanity from annihilating itself, Matthew 24, 22, his appearance will be heralded by the sound of a great trumpet, Isaiah 27, 13, Revelation 11, 15. He will establish his government and usher in a new age of music. Christ will free those who languished in captivity, and they will emerge into freedom with songs, with singing, with dancing, and adorned with tabrets. Isaiah 35, 10, 51, 11, Jeremiah 31, 4 to 13. See also Psalm 126 and Isaiah 26, unquote. Scripture says that the exodus from Egypt would pale into insignificance next to this future second exodus. We actually produced a song about this event and the songs that people would be singing when freed from bondage. This one was written by another accomplished composer on staff here at Herbert W. Armstrong College. You might know him as the managing editor of and frequent writer for the Trumpet Magazine and host of Trumpet Hour on kpcg.fm, but he is an accomplished singer, pianist, composer, and father of budding musicians, as we'll hear a little later. He wrote this this song, which we produced back in 2004, the lyrics connect the original Exodus with this future release from Bondage. We used a crowd of people to sing the refrain, and we had a desk can at the end reference lyrics found in the original Exodus song as sung by the Red Sea. It's a powerful recording, and I hope you enjoy Freedom by Joel Hilliker.
You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. On today's episode, we have discussed a brand new piece of literature produced by the Philadelphia Church of God, a booklet about music's importance. Titled How God Values Music, this booklet explores music's importance as revealed in Scripture. It investigates the Bible's various references to music, its history before man's creation, its journey through Old Testament Israel and the New Testament Church, as well as its future as revealed in Bible prophecy. It shows how music is a component of godly culture, how it is an essential part of our personal enrichment, and even how it connects us with the eternal. To accompany our discussion, we've heard a few examples of music produced right here by the Philadelphia Church of God. We just heard Freedom, composed by Joel Hilliker. This was about the release from bondage that people will experience at the coming of the Messiah and the music that will emanate from these bands of freed slaves. And we were talking about the future of music, as discussed in this new booklet, which goes through the various prophecies of tomorrow's world and how music will factor in to this coming culture. 
The final chapter of the booklet is simply titled The Importance of Music. This chapter takes all the historical discussion previous to it and draws conclusions based on what was studied through Scripture. It shows even the absurdity of asking how important music is by showing how this subject wasn't relegated to insignificance until more recent times. It shows how much our brains and bodies benefit from music, and it summarizes music's place in one's spiritual life. Now, speaking of music's importance to our physical lives and to our brains and our minds, here's a study that I just recently read about. This didn't make it into the booklet. This is from November 19th, 2018, Pacific Standard article by Tom Jacobs, and this was sent in by a very devoted and loyal listener and fan of this program. It's called More Evidence That Trained Musicians Are Superior Thinkers. New research suggests that practicing Bach and Beethoven can build up the brain. It says more than ever, a well-paying career requires sharp mental skills. People who can process information quickly, ignore distractions, and switch smoothly from one task to another are at an enormous advantage in the workplace. New research identifies one subset of the population that disproportionately possesses those precise abilities, trained, experienced musicians. Such people gave stellar performances on standardized tests measuring fluid intelligence, which the researchers defined as the ability to think abstractly and solve problems. The results, quote, add support to the mounting evidence of the positive relationship between music training and cognitive function. Unquote. Most of those enhanced abilities were limited to what they referred to as music experts, people who started training early in life and kept at it for at least a decade. But one very important skill set, executive functioning, was also bolstered for lightly trained amateur players. This suggests that even limited training and practice can provide significant cognitive benefits. In recent years, many studies have concluded that musical training enhances brain function. The goal of this new research was to confirm that link using the National Institute of Health's Toolbox Cognition Battery, a standardized set of tests that measure the key cognitive functions that include focus, processing speed, working memory, the ability to temporarily retain information and use it to learn, reason, or make informed decisions, and executive function, the ability to plan, organize, and accomplish goals. The participants were 72 college undergraduates who were grouped into three categories, musical experts, people who began formal training at age 10 or younger and kept up their practice for at least a decade, musical amateurs, those with at least one year of musical training, and non-musicians. Combining the results of all the tests, musicians with extensive experience scored significantly higher than non-musicians and less trained musicians, the researchers write in the journal Psychology of Music. Specifically, they did better on four of the five cognitive skills that the tests measured. These included attention, ensemble performance requires the ability to focus on one's own part without being distracted by other parts, the researchers note, working memory, presumably strengthened by the process of memorizing music, and processing speed, which is enhanced by learning to react rapidly to the demands of the music as well as to those of collaborators. The results of the executive function test, which involved rapidly sorting pictures by shape and color, were arguably the most intriguing in that modestly trained musicians performed significantly better than non-musicians, although not as well as highly trained musicians. If that finding is confirmed using a larger sample, then as a society, this is a quote, we should be in interested in universal musical education, perhaps starting in elementary and preschool-aged children, the researchers argue. And that's exactly what we do here at Imperial Academy on the Armstrong campus. 
As always with this type of study, the article writes, there is the danger of conflating correlation with causation. As the researchers concede, it's possible that people with superior fluid cognition skills are more likely to excel as musicians and stay in the practice. Indeed, a 2013 study concluded that brighter kids are more likely to take up and stick with music lessons. That said, the researchers point out that fluid intelligence skills are highlighted in musical training, which involves quickly comprehending a complex symbolic system, multitasking reasoning, and more. These findings strongly suggest that if you can master music, the skills you learn will prove very valuable even if you never touch an instrument again for the rest of your life. Parents and school administrators, take note. And that's the end of the article by Tom Jacobs. Again, that's November 19th, 2018 in the Pacific Standard. Before we hear one final musical example, I'll conclude with one final quote from the booklet that I think you'll find inspiring. Music is an important component of proper spiritual worship. The Old Testament sacrifices were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and many of the priesthood's functions were fulfilled in his heavenly office. See Hebrews 7 through 13. However, praise, carried by the strains of music, remains a vital part of the spiritual nation. Skipping down a little bit in the booklet. Consider if all the Old Testament sacrifices were replaced because they were only types of the spiritual yet we still make music as part of our worship, then that means music, particularly praising God through it, is not merely a type of something spiritual. It is a spiritual act. So many of the activities we can do as human beings are types that teach us about the eternal life and responsibilities awaiting us. Making music, however, is not a type of something. Music is happening in the spirit realm, in the third heaven. When we refine our abilities to wield these frequencies and rhythms, we are working with material that exists in another dimension. I hope you will order your own copy of this free booklet, How God Values Music. You could also go to thetrumpet.com right now and download a PDF, EPUB, or Kindle version, or read it online. I want to leave you with another piece of music we've produced here on our campus, previously unreleased. We've heard a composition from our hymn writer, the late Dwight Armstrong, one from our assistant music director, Mark Jenkins, one from our trumpet hour host and accomplished composer, Joel Hilliker. This is a new instrumental composition of mine written for my two sons and Mr. Hilliker's two daughters, one of which is my piano student. This is a piano quartet, meaning piano, violin, viola, and cello that I titled Festival Scherzo, which our kids recently recorded on the Armstrong Auditorium stage. I hope you enjoy Festival Scherzo from, I guess what you could call our Armstrong Piano Quartet. Thank you. 
You have been listening to Music for Life, a production of KPCG 101.3 on the FM dial in Edmond, Oklahoma. From the Herbert W. Armstrong College campus, I'm Ryan Malone. Thanks for joining me.